Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global, our primary web portal, for more information and links about the show. First hour is always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Our second hour today, we're going to be welcoming back Jeffrey Orthwine and Andy Sullivan. Now, they were here in February and again, I think, in March of 2022, talking about their indie movie, I Don't Want to Drink Your Blood Anymore. It's a great title. It's been 16 months since we've seen them, so they're going to come back and bring us up to date on the progress that they've had. So if you've ever dreamed about making your own film or uh, imagine what it's like, they're going to be here to tell you the reality of what that process uh, entails. So you want to stay around for our second hour today for that. But this is the first hour where we address your questions. So let's dive in. Mitch, what's up for today? Thanks, Bill. Our first question comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. He says, morning, everyone. What are the panel's thoughts on the Canon M light? Canon has a long and storied history. I'm not familiar with the M light particularly. Uh, Mitch, you had some thoughts on it. I, it it's way too soon for any of us to have hands-on experience. I just uh, was able to go to uh, a couple of links, which we should share it's really interesting. First of all, it doesn't say Canon anywhere on the website, just so you know. Uh, the other thing is the idea of being able to build uh, a camera up from just basic stuff, and then they're selling all kinds of add-on things for it. That is interesting because that's kind of what we do now with our uh, cameras. We like building them out with cages and handles and uh, all kinds of uh, extra stuff. So I like the concept. I can only say that the concept is very interesting in what they're offering there. So it's a more modular camera kind of building system? What does it Absolutely. look like? It wasn't, yeah. The box. That's just a box, and then you attach whatever you want to it. Yeah, you're right. You know, people have been putting uh, cages and rigs and things like that around their camera for such a long time that it, the industry is probably going more into that bespoke build your rig. Alex, your thoughts? I, I don't get it. <laughs> like I'm just, I'll just flat out. I don't get it. I mean, Magic Lantern's been around for a long time, and they've you know they've made their business around uh, taking your SLR and up, upgrading it. But the I don't I don't understand the, the. There's so many cameras that are in that that have become kind of more and more that form factor. That you know we I we used SLRs because there was nothing else out there. I mean, I had I had two I had three Canon, you know Mark you know Canon Mark twos or whatever, and five uh, D Mark twos, and I would never go back to them. Like, I mean, you know, like you're, it's such a wonky, I mean, it, it's really, I, I feel like, um, I looked at it and I was like, that's a lot of work for something that you could probably, uh, get some other way, you know, and, and the, you know, and I think that I'd rather just put a cage on it, you know, like just put a cage on the thing, you know, you can outrig most of these cameras. So you put a cage on, you put an external monitor on you, you know, add all the bits and pieces on the outside, changing its form factor to me just seems like a lot of work and not, I don't see how there's a lot of return, you know, I think. But it's fun, Alex, it's fun doing like all that. that. Sure, sure. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> it's just like, okay. Well, I, think I mean, I guess the argument is, is so that you can go to a client and it doesn't look like a SLR, you know, like it, but, but outside yeah. of that, I don't, I don't see why I would, why I would encase the camera that way. Whereas I could, where I could have just, I mean, I, yeah, the cameras aren't, a lot of cameras aren't that expensive anymore. You have to remember in the history, the 5D Mark II was $2,000 or $2,500. The next camera that could do what it could do was like 20 grand when it came out. You know, like this was, this was, you know, and so it was a very different world. Um, and, you know, and so the, and now, uh, 
now you can get incredible cameras for two thousand dollars or twenty five hundred dollars or 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 you know in many of these things. And sure, they don't they're not a box, but you could easily just put a bunch of gear around it. It's not adding features to the camera. Um, I don't I don't. I don't that's all I got to say. It was, you know, <laughs> not back this. in that era, I remember, because I was one of the early 5D Mark II adopters, and as Alex was saying, you know, it was a still camera. All those Canon cameras before it were designed for shooting stills. When they put the original Digic 1 processor in there, I think some engineers at Canon figured they could hack it and actually get 30 frames And it just barely did that. It. I mean, remember yeah. that it stopped after 30 minutes because of some tax in, in the European yeah. Union. They did 30 frames, not 2997. I mean, there were right. all kinds of, I mean, it was a really, and, and again, I shot hundreds of hours on those cameras, you know, right. three of them, we shot interviews with them all the time. Um, but, but I, it's not a part of my history that I would want to re return. Yeah, to. it was just a different look and, you know, it held blacks and it, it gave you a digital video thing at a price point that was unheard of at the time. But right. I think Alex is right. We moved on, but now that, that puts Canon in some of these traditional photo companies, and there are quite a few of them, um, in this odd place where they still need to make, uh, you know, make their companies work. But well, Canon has its own video cameras. I mean, it's, you know, they've got the, you know, the, the 300s and the 500s. And I mean, you know, Canon's doing video cameras. Right. I don't think that we need to, I just don't think we need at the, now that the price point of video cameras, real video cameras is already at a price that most of us can, you know, that if you're going to do, if you're going to build this, if you're going to buy that SLR, you know, you know, I think that you could get another camera at this point, you know, and so, and again, I wouldn't put it into a box. I guess what I would say is there are so many things that can go wrong with what, what I saw in that video, you know, how it prints, how it gets put together, how the buttons work. I think you're going to, you're built, you're, you're going to have a lot of um, performance issues when all you really need is an, is a hard, you know, uh, kind of cheese plate-ish uh, outer rig that you can rig all the gear onto. Um, I think that that would work just as well, unless you're just trying to hide the fact that you have an SLR. Well, we'll see what happens with it. Mitchell, do you want to have a last comment before we move on? Yeah, real quick. Uh, I think they should rebrand it to the Heath kit. <laughs> Hallicrafter's exactly. camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's go on to the next question. Next up, David Brady, New York, New York, asking, trying to grant a remote coworker access to some HTTPS services on the corporate LAN via NGROC when he tries it times out. However, it works for me over the public Wi-Fi, cellular, and remote. I'm stumped. Uh, Alex, can you help him out? This really sounds like some... Um, it. What it sounds like is you've got ports closed somewhere in the internal network. So there's there's ports that aren't, aren't allowed to move that traffic um, over. Um, so I think that that's where I would... I would look in the streaming world. I don't know what you're trying to pass over. We would look at 8080 or port 80 and port, not 8080, but port 80 and port 1935. Make sure that those are open in the corporate network or, if, you know, they, they may not be. <laughs> but, but anyway, but the, uh, but you, I think it's, a, there are ports closed in your uh, corporate network, which would be very common um, either in or out or both. And that's probably what's blocking it. And it, it would be why the public was working and the internal one was not. There you go. Hopefully that'll help you, David. Uh, let's move to the next question. And it's from Goran Khrushchev in Slovenia. Planning to step up my Zoom game for hybrid events. I have a Mac Mini with two Ultra Studio 3G monitors to get two feeds from Zoom ISO. Should I put my I input my video and audio on the same PC, or should I use another PC and have the Mac Mini just for outputs? Alex. 
I don't think there's any reason for you to need another computer. You you can definitely join a Zoom. Uh, you can join the Zoom via Zoom ISO. So you can join a Zoom call there. You can have your input go in there. And then you have the outputs go out of Zoom ISO. And, and that should all work just fine on a Mac Mini. You're not, you're not doing so many that it's going to be uh, difficult to deal with. In fact, I think it might actually be a little bit more complicated if you came in from another computer. You could, um, but I don't. I don't think that there's any. I don't see any reason for you to need to use a separate computer. You can definitely just join Zoom with Zoom ISO, and then output those those two outputs. Next question: Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, "What is the purpose and use of the double colon on Mid Journey?" John Preto is here today, and John helped us. According- According to the documentation, I I don't use it, but I'm going to try it out and see. It's a it's a it's a delimiter between two statements when you when you set up your prompt. Um, in in addition to the the comma, uh, the double colon is a is a hard break or hard separation between the two terms in your prompt. So it, it's a little bit like Boolean logic. It's the different form of if or then or something like that. Uh, Alex, it, you do a it, lot of this. Yeah, it, it, I, I believe that I, I've only used it a couple of times. And what it does is it, it, it says, I want this and I want this. When you send it over with commas or a long string, it says, I'm going to create something with all the words you just gave me. Whereas the colon is a hard break and says, I want this and I want this. Now, it may still combine them, but it's saying, I really want, this is not a description of one thing. I have two different descriptions of things that I want there. Um, and I believe that you can put in ratios. So you can say, I want mostly this or or less of that. So, but it's more of a hard break, really defining that these are two separate items that I expect to see in my uh, solution. So I want 80 violin and 20 purple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. there you go. Uh, let's move. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are the current recommendations for a pan tilt zoom camera, NDI, SDI, HDMI, for live stream and video production, budget, mid-range, and high-end. Okay, so there's a lot of action and a lot of equipment in that area. Alex, help us out. I mean, I think that I would probably look at Bird Dog for the budget version of these. And, and I mean, it's not super budget, but it but it would be. I would say that the uh, your budget is yeah. Bird Dog has probably got when you're looking for NDI, SDI, HDMI. They have cameras that I think have all of those things. Um, at mid-range, I would say that you're probably, you know, I would call mid-range the Sony um, FR7. So that's an FR7. That's a that's Super 35, or, I'm sorry, full-frame sensor. Uh, it's the same sensor as the FX6, except it's a PTZ. And we've used those for quite a few shows now. And, uh, you know, we're really happy with them. In fact, we're using them this week in, uh, at, at uh, Comic-Con. <laughs> so anyway, so the um, so uh, so the FR7s are, uh, are really... Uh, a great camera in that mid-range. I mean, that's about ten grand uh, with the with the lens and everything else. You're probably talking twelve or thirteen thousand dollars a unit, um, and uh, and so those are um, so the FR sevens are a uh, another option in that mid-range. The high end, when you say okay, now I want to go to a, a bigger, really bigger version of this, you're talking about you know telemetrics heads with individual cameras. So remember that you don't have to have them all in one as a PTZ. Uh, you can have a a PTZ head and then put a full camera on. Um, I, I have done many, many shows with Blackmagic, um, uh, Ursa Minis, you know, with uh, Cabrillo lenses sitting on, on top of um, these uh, uh, telemetrics heads. And that's going to give you the highest quality. Um, of course, you can put even, you can put Venices on them. You can put whatever you want. But when you talk about high end, it can, it can get pretty complex. Mitchell. I talked to my friend who works in a rental house in Philadelphia. Hi, Tom. 
Uh, and uh, it's always interesting to see what cameras are going off the shelves for rentals. And in that range, that FR7 is uh, is a hot product. Oh, there you, know, you go. Yeah, I mean, the FR7, it, in, in if you're, there are reasons. I, I think that in the $10,000 range, which is kind of a, a very common range in production for these cameras, the advantage of the Panasonic 150 is the te- is the telemetry, so it can send stuff back to uh, be used in Unreal Engine. There's a bunch of you know things that are it can be remote. There's some more remote control options for it right now. Uh, in the less expensive version, the um, Canon has um, a couple of these these uh, one inch sensors and uh, that are in the five thousand dollar range. But the but the FR7, the full frame sensor with that lens just looks so good. You know, it just really it, it's an amazing looking camera. Um, to have as a PTZ, so I, I'm not surprised that it's go, it's really renting well, and um, I know a lot of people that have bought them. Uh, Mitchell, you want to come back? Yeah, just to, depending what lens you put on there. If it's a Sony lens, there's a lot of metadata that that lens will talk to the camera body and uh, yeah. have there. It, it doesn't necessarily transfer into right. all the editing systems out there, but it does a great job. Yeah, it, it, it goes back and forth to the lens, but we're not getting the information in real time. The, the big advantage of the Panasonic is you're getting that information in real time that can be delivered back to a real-time system. So the Sony doesn't do that yet. <laughs> but we think, I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't be sending us that data back, but it's not there yet. Wonder if is there a format for telemetrics data? That, yeah, there's a variety of formats that are, that yeah. are there. It's, it's just a matter of Sony. I mean, the camera just came out. Sony keeps on doing great firmware updates. We expect to see a lot more by the end of the year. If you look at it in Catalyst, it's going to show quite a bit of metadata. Let's uh, move. Next question. Next one coming up. Simon Ray in Midlands, UK. Can the panel suggest any power-hungry applications or test programs I can use to find the M1 Mac Mini's power consumption under full load? Well, so I think you've got CPU and GPU, and if you want to really max a camera out, you need something that's going to hit both of those as hard as possible. Alex, your thoughts? Metashape. So down, um, uh, so Agisoft has a program called Metashape. Take that. Um, if you if you can, um, you can uh, grab a bunch of raw images. So um, these are, and and I'll see if I can, you know, if, if you ping me on Discord, I, I keep on meaning to post it. I just don't have a place to do it. <laughs> so, but, um, but if you, um, uh, because the, the files are so big, but if you take a bunch of raw files, um, and and the and uh, go out and take some photogrammetry, maybe take your if you've got an iPhone 14, take a bunch of raw photos, um, feed those into it, and set all the all the uh, quality dials all the way up to the top of the quality dials. Um, I have a project with about 192 photos, and I have not successfully rendered it at that res on any computer. It basically runs for a couple days and then restarts the computer. Um, and so, and that that's all the way up to the Mac Pros. And and if you uh, there's a picture if you see, um, I think uh, you, there, there there's some social networks where social um, influencers that have all of their CPUs and GPUs at 100. percent um, that's I've I've helped a couple of folks get it get it there. <laughs> so so it's so it um, but it it it's designed to fully utilize your CPU and GPU. So if you give it enough data so that it doesn't get through it quickly, and you turn all those quality dials up, you'll get you'll you'll push to that computer as hard as it can go. And I would imagine that if you uh, if you really want to, you can probably turn your home heater down and do that in the winter, yeah, and exactly. it will help your house. <laughs> yeah, help exactly. your house stay warm. Let's go. Next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, Jack asked, 
YouTube content often features audio that does not match the video, even from sources that claim to be audio experts. How do we prepare, avoid, and rid ourselves of this video or audio latency? Boy, it's a challenge, and we've on the show been talking about this for a long time. Alex, your thoughts about latency? Yeah, I mean, getting the sync right is, you know, the problem is most of the time we're capturing uh, sync, we're capturing the audio and the video separately. Video tends to lag a little bit because there's, it takes more processing t- time. So it's pretty common for audio to be a little bit ahead of the video. Um, you know, we spend on a large project, you know, that if we're streaming it, and I'm assuming you're talking about streaming, but I mean, that people can also get it off in, in their audio. If they're capturing, um, you know, two system audio, they may not get it lined back up again. Um, one of the things that we do, that's why you use a, you know, a slate at the beginning where you, you, you clack down on it. Uh, it's so that you have that, that marker um, that's there. Oftentimes, one of the things that we also do is we make sure that we're recording audio on the camera because the, can- the audio on the camera will tend to be in perfect sync. And so then you can, if you're capturing in two system, um, so if you're capturing your audio on a recorder and you have that, you can always check it against the original audio that was in the camera. So that's one of the ways to just make sure that you're on the right path um, going down that going down that system. It's but it, it, it's something that is hard because you start doing a, a bunch of work with your audio and you you know and you maybe take it out to another app or you start moving things around or you most importantly you disconnect the audio from the video because you're going to do a bunch of other things to it and now you're you just have to really pay a lot of attention to making sure that it stays on. Those things. The other common thing I see is you're talking about YouTube content is people who have shot at non-standard. Uh, audio sample rates. We see a lot of times kind of the digital world expects 48 kilohertz, but we see people doing 44.1 or worse, 32 kilobit video or audio married with their video. And those sample rate mismatches cause drift over time. So it will start out in sync, but get worse and worse as you progress watching the video. So the, the first thing I do always is throw anything that comes to me from somebody else that I have to use in one of my programs into a little program called Media Info, and it'll tell you exactly the the sample rate and things like that. And if I see anything other than 48 kilohertz, I'll do a transcode to make sure that my audio is locked to that standard so that I don't get that kind of drift, which is really annoying. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, is it worth getting uh, the Resolve Studio if you have an Apple Silicon Mac to gain the advantage of hardware acceleration? Mitch, you want to start us off? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to compare it to the Mac Pro, which is the, the Mac Daddy, get it, Mac Daddy, uh, of uh, the Apple product that has uh, the new uh, Apple Silicon. And I would think, first of all, you used to buy the Afterburner card for like $2,000. There yeah. is the equivalent of eight afterburner cards on the silicon chip. So as long as they're taking advantage of that, uh, you know, GPU or CPU or whatever, um, they're getting quite a boost in performance. Yeah, those machines are um, remarkably fast because of some of those new changes they've made. Alex? Yeah, the, um, I I think that the, um, Studio is one of the many apps that are going to take advantage of the M1. I don't think you have to get it, but but um, but Resolve Studio. I don't think I don't think Resolve Studio is particularly faster than the result the base Resolve. If that's what you're trying to compare, they both the acceleration should work in a very similar way to my to my knowledge. Do you remember? Do you off the top of your head know any of the capabilities that? he would lose out on if he goes with just the regular Resolve as opposed to Studio? Uh, there's a lot of pro solutions inside of the Studio. I don't have them off the top of my head because I, I haven't, I will admit that I've only have, I, 
you get um, studio with every Blackmagic camera when you buy them, you know, all the cinema cameras. And as a result, we, we have a whole bunch of those cameras. And so we have a whole bunch of licenses of studios. So, so they're on a bunch of computers here. So I, don't, I haven't used uh, the base version for a while. So I'm not sure exactly what the, the Delta is. Yeah, and there's there must be some, but I don't know either. Mitch, you had some thoughts. Yeah, Alex. The other day we were talking about the uh, the amount of the uh, uh, optimization in Resolve that's written for Mac Silicon, and I think I heard the numbers of twenty five percent. They're not a hundred percent or uh, maximum. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yet. I don't know. I, I I don't know exactly what the ratio is, but I mean Resolve has been optimized towards the M1, but I, you know, I don't think it's all the code has been written to those libraries. I don't know even if they could do that right now. So, you know, there's just a lot of libraries that, that may not complete what they need. So uh, it wouldn't be surprising that they wouldn't necessarily do that, but, but there's still probably a lot of room for a lot of these companies. Uh, a lot of companies that are building software for the M1, we look at their, their speeds right now and make decisions. It's one of the Linus Tech Tips thing did is we'll make a bunch of decisions about what is faster, not faster, not taking into account that very few companies have really opt truly optimized for the M1 architecture. The one of the few is the you know if you look at like Zoom ISO um, and Zoom itself, but Zoom ISO is very optimized for the M1, and what you see are incredible performance. Um, you know, eight 1080p outputs um, at 50% utilization. <laughs> you know, so uh, it, so it, it really has a lot of power that companies haven't taken advantage of yet. It is time for our reminder every day that your questions drive this entire show. So as always, you're welcome to put questions in. Even uh, Alex used to remind us all the time that even if you have questions uh, outside of the actual show hours, you can kind of pop them into the system. They can stay there for 24 hours and that's fine. They'll be available for the next one. And when those questions pop up, everybody has the opportunity to vote on them. And voting on the questions, the highest voted questions, get uh, dealt with the quickest and we spend the most time on them. So it's important to kind of learn that system if you want to make sure that your questions get to the top of the heap and we spend as much time as possible on them. Let's move on. Next question. Thank you, Bill. Uh, next one up from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Mike asked, morning, everyone. I'm looking for some low-profile Bluetooth headphones similar to my Mi Audio X6s for Zoom calls. Any suggestions? Alex has one for you, Alex. Yeah, I think that the question really is, is the, I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions, but one of the questions that you have is, are you, uh, do you need to speak into them? Are you hoping to use them as the microphone as well as the head, headset, or are you just trying to use them as the headset? So, you know, uh, Bose, Jabra, Ultimate Ears all have ones that are in-ear that are simply, um, they, you know, they're relatively low profile. They're not going to be quite as low profile as the ones that we use here um, because these are wired and they don't have to have the transmitters and all the other things on them. Um, if you're using them, I will say that that I don't find, I wouldn't consider most of the Bluetooth headsets to be a good microphone. Um, so the, the, because without a boom going down, so I use the, um, I don't know if I have it here, but I, ha I, I use the, um, uh, the shocks. Uh, open comms, which has a boom that swings down, and that boom greatly improves the quality of the audio, um, so that so that you can um, and it's it's bone induction. It's not as low profile because it looks like you got a big thing stuck up here, um, but uh, but it is. But that boom makes a big difference. Um, the so it, it just depends on what you're trying to do. I would not use if I was trying to up my Zoom game. Uh, I would not use a Bluetooth earpiece, a low-profile Bluetooth earpiece for that. Um, but if you're just trying to listen to it, 
Uh, I really like my, I will say I like the Ultimate Ears fits. They're probably not quite as small as they could be, um, but they are, they're, they're pretty slick. I mean, and then because you didn't give us a price, um, the, uh, the ones that you could use that are, that are wireless and completely low profile, not Bluetooth, but, but, uh, a, a, a low profile transmission are Phonax. Phonak is, uh, is built. If you ever watched 24 and Jack Power puts a little thing into his ear, um, uh, that's a, that, that's what Phonak makes. And so, uh, it'll transmit. If you put one in your office, you'd be able to have it be completely, uh, transparent. Now it's not going to have the same quality as, as a larger one like this, but, but phone, but keep in mind that Phonak is a, it's P-H-O-N-A-K. Um, they make a lot of hearing aids, but they make a lot of also, um, security based, uh, comm systems. Next question. I've got a question. Uh, what kind of gimbal or hand grips are people using to shoot with their DSLR cameras these days? Uh, let's start with you, Mitch. What are you using and have you... <laughs> It, well, it, you know, I'm shooting it to myself, but here's the thing. I, I pulled my FX30 off the uh, stand the other day uh, to go out and shoot with it. And previously, I had the classic uh, over-the-shoulder camera or something on a tripod. Right. It's interesting how heavy, once you've loaded up, i got Tilta on everything on this camera, that you can't really hold it up here. You really kind of want to hold it if you're going to hold the camera with a handle down here. And then I got to thinking, well, I hear Ronin, uh, the, the uh, what is it, the uh, RS2 and the RS3, uh, the gimbal setup, so you can hold it that way, and it's much more comfortable. Um, and then uh, I guess there's a couple of other devices that are, uh, Tilta actually makes a, a shoulder mount. It goes over and it's handheld, and then you just plop the camera in the, in the middle spot there, and off she goes. So just thinking of ways to best man manipulate the camera, uh, when you pull it off the pole, because it's been sitting there for two years, and now it's time to take it off and do do a couple of jobs with it. Okay. Well, Alex, I know his brother particularly is an expert in this, but Alex also has a lot of experience in it. Well, it depends on what you're trying to do as far as stabilization goes. Um, I have an RS2, which I like a lot. Um, the RS3 and the RS3 Pro are really amazing pieces, and they have a lot of things you can add to them so that you can do follow focus, you can do a variety of other controls to them. They've really built them into a great system. So I think that the uh, the RS2s and, three, and specifically the RS3 um, is pretty impressive. I don't have it yet, but I have seen it in a couple productions. Um, one thing to think about is there's a reason that we put shoulder rigs on is because that takes a lot of pressure off. So if you if you get either a, a, a um, uh, an eyepiece or you get the, the or you get the you know a good monitor that sits in the right place, you can actually sit there and put it over your shoulder, so you get a shoulder mount there, um, and then you'll have rails, and you really start to build out a full size camera um, with those with that shoulder rig. Um, so I think that um, those are you know that's another way to um, to make that work, take a little pressure off the easy rig style that you were talking about earlier that goes up over your head, comes down and hangs. It just looks funny. Um, you know, like it, it's, it's hard for people to take you seriously when you do it that way, but it works really well. And if you add that to a gimbal, you can get some pretty, um, pretty great shots. But, but you do have people, you get, you, you get a lot of attention. That's the, that's the only, it's not low profile anymore. Um, and so those are things to think about. Of course, once you start going up higher, I was, as I was saying, we're going to try to get my brother on. He's got a little time right now because of the strike. Um, and, um, but he's, he's using a, a, a steady cam with a um, Trinity rig. Uh, airy tr trinity head and so um so that you can 
if you're not looking, if you're not limited by price, that's <laughs> price and the time buy, to learn how to use buy a it. House, because, you know, for that. Yeah. So yeah, but it's it's pretty slick little rig. Those aren't just buy a rig, slap it on. I did that once. I I got a full SETI cam vest and and rig because we had to shoot something and I had to be very mobile. And it took me three days of going out for at least an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon to start becoming comfortable with not botching the shots because a suspended camera like that is a whole different center of gravity and you learn how to move differently. I have infinite respect for the people who do that professionally because it is not an easy thing. They, they, are, they are skilled. I think they're almost at the equivalent of like ballet dancers. They're really good steady cam operators because they just physically know exactly how to move to keep the results as close to perfect as possible. So it's it's an interesting thing. Mitch, did you want to weigh back in on this? Yeah, and you got to retire by the time you're 50 because your knees need to be rebuilt by that time if you were a It is an operator. athletic pursuit, no question but about that. The, the other thing is, uh, wasn't there a little mini steady cam that Garrett Brown invented that you just stick the camera on the top and you it was a little gimbal thing you move with your thumb? But well, now, for phone-sized we, things, there's lots of them. DJI makes right. a lot of those little things that are great little steady shot, but not for the bigger cameras. As you're getting up into heavier cameras, you have to be more serious about it. Let's go to the next question. All right. Next up is John Foltz in Ceiling Screw, Pennsylvania. Athletics ask for specs on a vMix Windows PC. Yipes! How can users know all the ins and outs? Processors, boards, graphic cards, coolers. Macs are so much easier. Mini, studio, iMac, done. Thoughts? <laughs> John Fredo, what are your thoughts? Uh, if I'm going to build a vMix machine, it's going to be an i7, at least 10th generation i7 or above. R Ryzen on the AMD side, if you like the AMD processors, 16 gigs of RAM, at least 4 terabyte SSD, and then RTX, uh, the NVIDIA RTX 3000 or above, a 3000 or a 4000 GPU card, and that's important for vMix. Yeah, we came out of that era where literally everything had to be specified. The bus speed of your hard drives made a difference as to whether or not your video editing dropped frames or not. I see less and less of that just because computers are getting more and more powerful. But I know it's still a thing and it's always good to, to pay attention, do your research and make sure that you're not buying something that is at the right price for you, but that just can't do the job that you're looking for. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if, if someone was going to ask me to do it, I'd, I'd start building the budget around a four or $5,000 box. I mean, some people will spend a little less on it, but but I would build a, you know, now if you really, uh, Puget Systems is probably the thing that I would really think about of just having them build one for you. Because <laughs> they, you could say, I'm doing vMix and I really, and I have this budget and, and they'll build one for you. It might be a little bit more expensive because they're building it out for you, but a lot of people use their systems. If you want to build it yourself, of course, exactly what John said. Um, you need a faster graphics card. Make sure that you think about how many outputs you want because that'll define, you know, whether you get a duo or a, or a quad card for your, because um, you have video in, video out. So remember that you have a bunch of I.O. that you need to create there. So you might have a couple decklink cards that you're putting in there for, for um, getting the video in and out. Um, you may be deciding you're using NDI, but I would still have SDI as an option. Um, and uh, and so the so those would be th some of the things that I would I would consider. I'd, I'd probably lean towards the Threadripper um, for for this type of thing. Um, but uh, I think that you know for four or five thousand dollars, you could probably get a pretty solid machine that will do a lot of the work for you. Let's go to the next question from Daniel McFarland in Northern Ireland, uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland, Great Britain. What IFB internal foldback? I think that's what you referred to it. Uh, would the panel recommend interruptible. for interruptible, interruptible fold, fold, feedback, foldback, fold whatever? It's so funny. I've used that acronym so long. Sorry. Um, 
Uh, which one would the panel recommend for live production and Zoom calls? Uh, let's see, Alex, start off. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's the standard ones, and then there's there's a couple of the other ones that are that are out there. So um, the there's you have the standard is audio implements is the one that makes for most broadcasters. That's what they're using. If you see the little the little loopy thing going down the side, they're using typically an audio implements um, that's there, and it, it 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 works pretty well. There's also Ear Hero and Bubblebee. Um, those are going to be very low profile, so you'll see very very thin. Um, lines that go go up there, and so ear heroes are used heavily in security um, by all the way up to Secret Service, <laughs> and so um, they're very 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 low profile. Uh, Bubble bees are probably a little more comfortable with a little bit little bit better audio, uh, a little bit better isolation. Um, so those are all the standard IFB inputs. Now I have to admit, for Zoom calls and for what I'm doing here, um, I am using these little. Um, uh, Linsole uh, SZ10s, I think, are the ones that I use. They're about $50. If you spend the ones that are more, you'll go look at it and go, well, $50. What happens if I spend $130? I find the $130 ones very uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'd rather, I'd rather just have, and I have extra boxes of these ones because that way they will fall apart if you use them every single day, four or five hours a day. Um, you're eventually going to reach the end of their of their cycle. But um, uh, but the overall, I find that their quality is, the audio quality is really high. And it's pretty isolated. I put them in both ears instead of one um, so that I just, I'm in the, I just want to be present to the show. Um, now, I often do one ear uh, if I'm doing, um, if I'm doing production where I need, want to be able to hear things around me. So you have to also decide about, decide what you need there. And I use these guys from N Ear. It's the same kind of thing. These are uh, these are equivalent to the Bubble Bee and things like that. They're they're down around a hundred dollars for a, a, a mono earpiece. They use a three point five millimeter connector. It takes stereo and folds it down into mono. They are invisible. I've got one in right now. And uh, I'm not saying necessarily you have to buy them from these people or whomever. I'm just saying that these kind of things. If you're not looking for music quality, you want to be particularly comms clear. These are designed for those kind of security applications where people need to make sure that their comms is correct. I've been surprised, though, at the quality of the sound out of it. I actually sometimes do mic checks on the days that I host, and I've learned how to hear these in a way that I can tell whether the bass is missing. I mean, they're not full-scale music quality, but I can hear those frequencies and whether they're presence or not. And so it's, it's been very effective for me. Your mileage may vary. Next question. J.J. McKenna, Santa Venetia, California, coming in with a question similar to an iPhone or excuse me, phone holder with quarter inch threads. Are there holders for the Elgato Stream Deck with quarter inch threads to mount multiple decks at a workstation? Alex, have you solved this problem? You know, the place I would look is actually Etsy. Um, there are so many. Uh, I've, I've been trying to find the ones that I that I want to use, um, but I you know, but I've been searching for a couple of these because I've got kind of a growing collection of, of stream decks in my, in my office. And I'm trying to figure out where to mount them. Now I, I kind of hack them and just put plates behind them and, and uh, make them work where I need them to go. But, uh, but I think that I'm, I've been looking for these mounts and everything, almost everything that I find that I want to use is an Etsy. So if you, if you look there, you're going to see a lot of um, fairly, you know, they're not particularly expensive. They're in the 50, $60 range. Um, and they are all, um, you know, there's lots of different versions. You can have a little one with an XL and you can have, you know, they have all these different um, pieces. Of course, the other place to look is Thingiverse and other things like that, where you can see there's a lot of templates out there that you could print and then just simply tap it with a quarter 20. So those are, um, those are other options that you might want to take a look at. So you can find ones that you can print 
or if you're looking for something that looks a little bit more refined um, and you don't have to do anything other than drop them in, um, then I would I would take a hard look at Etsy. There's a lot of different versions. Let's go next question. Peter Rosado from Las Vegas, Nevada, asking panelists thoughts on the IMAX info presented here. And there's a link. Uh, I haven't been able to follow that link. And I know, uh, Alex, you do some work on IMAX. Have you been able to take a look at that and see whether that IMAX conforms to what you know about IMAX? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, IMAX 70 millimeter, I think, is what you probably want. Now, most of my knowledge around IMAX is around some other stuff. So the, um, but the, uh, you know, I think that the other thing you want to look at is, oh, no. There's, you know, there's there's a couple of different things to think about with IMAX. And you're probably going to want to, th- I mean, the hard part right now is that most of the, um, the biggest theaters, the biggest IMAX theaters are sold out for Oppenheimer, I think all the way through the, its entire, <laughs> almost as in, you know, a huge part of its run um, is, is uh, they're sold out. And so it's hard to get into them. And, you know, not all of the, you know, the, so I think that that's the, you know, that's the thing that you kind of have to take it into account. Um, I think that I would definitely see Oppenheimer at an IMAX. Um, I think that you're going to be pretty happy with any version of this that you see in the IMAX um, uh, format. Um, this was shot for IMAX. It's built for IMAX, you know, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go see it at another theater, to be honest. Um, you know, like it's now the, the other thing is, is that with any um, uh, with any theater, there's op- optimum seats. Um, uh, the optimum seats, um, I think, um, in, a, in an IMAX theater is usually seven to eight rows from the back. Um, you want to be up a little higher than the middle than you would normally put yourself in the middle, but you're going to be looking up a lot uh, into an IMAX theater. And you kind of want to get to a point where you're looking straight across to the center of the screen. So the screen tends to be lowered, kind of lower down. And and so what you want to do is you want to, like when you're looking at the center of the screen, you want to be kind of sitting there um, right in that area. And then you want to be in the center. Now I consider, the problem for me is that I only consider about 12 seats in any theater worth having. So there's the optimum row, there's the row behind it and the row in front of it. And then there's two seats on either side of that, of, of that center column that, that I consider viable. And so if I can't get a seat in that, um, then those seats, I don't go to the movies. Um, and so, so the, um, I'm not going to pay a lot of money for, to, to sit in the corner. So, um, uh, so, so I think that, and I feel like the seats that are in the front, you know, the very front seats that, that you might see wide open, I think there should be a log. I mean, I'm not usually up for laws and new laws and everything else, but there should be a log. <laughs> there should be a minimum. Theater go or regulation. <laughs> like theater go regulations, like just take those out. I mean, come on, come on. Like no one should be buying a ticket and end up in there. Although I do see people, I'll see an empty theater and I'll see people like who bought those on purpose. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand like why you would sit down there anyway. Um, but I, but I think that, uh, I would, you know, I would go for your, you know, there in any given city, there's two or three theaters, two or three IMAX theaters that are the, you know, the, 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 the main IMAX theaters, you know, that, that will be the largest screens. Um, not all the IMAX theaters are the same size. Um, so you want to you want to think about those, but those are the ones that tend to get sold out. So you start thinking about what time you'd like to go to see the movie a weekday in the morning. It's a good idea <laughs> to, find, you know, to find the theater that you want. Uh, just take a day off. You know, if you really want to see Oppenheimer, just take the day off and or, or move your schedule around and and, uh, you know, and, and, and go see it in the morning. But a 1030 show is a lot easier to find good good seats. 
I saw a picture that came by on the internet a couple of days ago, and it was the actual 70 millimeter IMAX print of Oppenheimer. And it I, apparently, Mr. Nolan was so specific that he there's like an inch, le- or a sixty fourth of an inch left on the outside of the gigantic roll of film because he literally filled up the maximum amount of time you can make an IMAX 70 millimeter print for. I guess the movie is two and a half hours or something like that, and it's right at the edge of having to be a two-reel IMAX. The, the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the reels, if you ever, if, I mean, these are huge platters of, of film, yes. you know, so the, these massive, I was, uh, I was somewhere where we had, we had a, there was a Pacific Rim, you know, IMAX, you know, uh, film there, and it's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's probably five feet in diameter, and it's just this giant reel, and the and the IMAX prints are just massive. It's it's incredible, you know, when when you see them in actual film film format. Uh, let's move next question. Next question from Gregory Wheeler, and uh, he's in Elliott City. What is the difference between DMX to Artnet and DMX to Ethernet? Um, John Preto. Okay, so so networking protocols. You've got two two different layers. We're talking about the physical layer, and then and then data link and networking transport layers on the OSI model. And so DMX, as it was originally defined, uses XLR, either three pin or five pin um, connectors, much like you'd see in audio, but there are different impedance. And then the the DMX to Ethernet is an adapter that will take in the the um the five pin or the three pin and then convert that into ethernet using one of the protocols that dmx uses over networking which is artnet or ac and there's like three three different protocols you can use in within your network so it's you're 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 transposing two different things here in your question but that's how they work Thank you. That's good. Uh, by the way, I just found that picture. So that's how much of the Oppenheimer, that's how much, there's just no room for any more footage on the massive reel. That's really cool. And you uh, know how much it weighs? 600 pounds. There so you if go. they have a small number of people at the theater, they all got to go up to the projectionist booth and help them move the uh, platter. <laughs> them change to the next movie. Be interesting. Um, again... It is great to have your questions in, and we're always looking for more. So every time you see Office Hours, uh, we're excited to have you put your questions into the queue. And please do vote on those questions. Let us know which ones you're most interested in. Next question. Here's Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia, asking, I need to edit a short trailer video of two minutes. I have my iPad Pro to use for House of Worship. I'm away from my home for now. Uh, so, Alex, what is your recommendation? Uh, I assume what you're talking about is is uh, you're trying to edit something on your iPad Pro. You're not going to be home. Uh, you know, I would really look at uh, LumaFusion or Final Cut. I mean, for those, I think that, I mean, there's obviously there's a Resolve is on the on the iPad as well. I think it's probably a little heavier than what you need for what you're doing. So um, I think I'd probably focus on either the new Final Cut, which just got an update. Um, I think that they just... Um, went through and got a host of new features and fixes and so on and so forth. So I'd play with Final Cut um, or LumaFusion. And LumaFusion, of course, is, has been on the on the iPad for a long time. It's probably a bit more mature, um, but but they've really done great work with Final Cut as well. So those are the two most uh, the two that I would I would play with um, to to see how they work. Yeah, I think LumaFusion runs on more types of iPads. Uh, I think that the Maybe Final Cut iPad Pro, for so iPad. 
I think it's the now, iPad Pro. I think it has to be an M series though, so maybe an older iPad Pro might not run. Um, yeah, if if you don't have an M series, you'll need to you'll need to use the um, uh, LumaFusion, which is a great solution for the what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael is here with a question. If I wanted to market my electronic music to game makers and 3D content creators, would the Unity Asset Store or Unreal Engine Marketplace be a better platform to start with? Alex. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think I probably the Unreal Engine Marketplace or the Unreal Marketplace is probably a lot more robust as far as the movement goes there. So that's probably the one you want to look at if you're trying to market those things. Uh, it's going to be, I will say there's an enormous amount on both of these marketplaces, but it definitely uh, the Unreal Engine is, is very deep. So I, I would manage my expectations on how the kind of sales that you're going to get um, just because unless it's very specific and something that people want to jump on, I think it, you, you may find that the numbers are, are really hard to get because of the, the marketplace is so, uh, so mature. Next question. I have a question here. Uh, in Teratron or Teleprompter, how do you use your prompter for daily Zoom meetings? And Mitch, you put, raise your hand on it. Do you have an additional comment or want to clarify? Yeah, further? I, I kicked it back to myself. Sorry about that. Um, when I was shopping for a teleprompter, I went all over the place. I was a 24-inch, uh, big 42, uh, some gigantic monster thing that uh, Alex has described before. And I ended up with a small 7-inch uh, home stream for an Interatron because I, I don't have that many situations where I'm reading text. So if all I want to do is make eye contact, I have a monitor that's plugged into the active speaker on Zoom. And anytime someone speaks, including myself right now, I'm looking at myself, um, I can see eye to eye with whomever is right there. Alex. Yeah, the um, I mostly use it for an Teratron. So that's that's the primary way that I use the the teleprompter. I I don't like to read text that much. <laughs> so so I, I, I think that it needs, I feel like it there are times when we need it. And what's great is with the, with if you have a, a teleprompter on. Uh, you can very quickly switch between one to the other. Now, I use Smart Prompter, or prompt, yeah, Prompter, Smart Prompter, which will just listen to your voice and just move along with it. Mostly because I just don't have. Uh, oftentimes, I don't have a teleprompter operator for my own stuff. Um, but, but again, I I tend to prefer to practice and have something that looks maybe not quite as clean, but it feels a little bit more authentic when I when I do the records. Next question. From Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, what model PEPLINK does the group suggest it can accept house internet and provide cellular failover to my production kit? Uh, Alex. Yeah, so one thing you want to think about is whether you need to bond the cellular or whether you're using cellular uh, modems on their own. So if you're doing, trying to do a failover to a 5G in, or, a, or, a four, you know, or a LTE, um, and the question really is, is that, you know, so I'll, I think the ones that we've used in the past have been the Max HD series. Um, but one of the things is if you're bonding it, I believe that Peplink has its own service that you can use their cloud. But what we've done in the past is there's one piece of hardware in our facility that is the receiver for that, that for the bonded um, connections. And it's providing bandwidth from our facility back to the to the to the bond because something has to give that bond back, you know. So if you're bonding the the cellular, it is a it's it's one type, and you you need you need another 
piece on the other end. Um, if it's uh, if you're simply using cellular as a as a rollover, um, then there are more options. And again, I believe that what we've used in the past, um, it's been a little while since I've used them, but I believe that what we've used in the past have been primarily the Max uh, HD series. So take a look at those. There's a lot of different different sizes available. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, recently a team of security researchers used an abandoned uplink facility to broadcast via the ANIC F1R satellite. Wouldn't the encoding uplink hardware be hard to use for the uninitiated? Mitchell? Um, I remember the first time I did a radio show via satellite at the MGM Studios in Disney, dropping a name, and... um, we were on the satellite as our foldback, and uh, it was very hard getting used to the two seconds it takes for your signal to go up to the bird and then come back down. I mean, it only goes at the speed of light. doesn't go faster. Wow. That must have been an interesting thing. I, I've told the story before about doing stadium announcing, and the fact that there was about a three-quarters of a second delay between what I said and what came over the speakers just totally disoriented me at first. It's very hard to speak into any system where you're hearing yourself back with any kind of significant delay. So that would be really difficult. Uh, Congratulations on getting through that, however you did. Let's go to the next question. Talalok Lopez Waterman from Brevard, North Carolina. Is a 10K ohm resistor the right choice for a pull-down resistor for digital input on an Arduino? Hmm. I'm not a a technical. uh, Alex, do you have thoughts on whether or not that works? I believe that it's a commonly used one. Um, so, so I think that that is, that that's probably, I don't, uh, I think it, you know, the problem is, is making those decisions tends to be dependent on the, on what you're planning to do with it. So it, it would be hard inside of that question to, to answer it exactly. Um, but it's, it is a, um, it's oftentimes a, a, a used, uh, you know, that's, that's oftentimes what, what is used. Um, but I'm not sure if uh, it depends on what you're doing with it. Mitchell, it additional thoughts? Yeah, I go back to my uh, old days of logic circuits um, using a pull down or a pull up resistor because you can do both. You can go one down with a little uh, with just going to ground. And if you use one going to some voltage, uh, you're pulling it up. It's in order to force the uh, the digital sense that you're messing with, that it doesn't go drifting back and forth because sometimes it can uh, it can just go high or go low, depending whether it's playing limbo or not. Next question. Next question for David Brady in New York, New York. What type of content benefits from high bitrate streaming settings? I tend to be conservative and stream general talking head events at 2.5 kilobits versus motion heavy at 5 kilobits. Thoughts or opinions? Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, so um, so when I'm uh, for, for, I like to try to, at least have a ladder. So it depends on whether we're sending something to a CDN like YouTube or Facebook or or um, Vimeo or, or any of these other ones. They're going to do their own transcoding. So they're going to transcode that for you. Um, so you, now you're just looking at what to give them as a maximum rate um, because they're going to build the ladder. So there's an HLS ladder that typically is built on the delivery. Um, what if you're building your own ladder? If I'm building my own ladder, then I tend to now start to, I want to have a great maximum. So um, so I want to have something that's up there. What I would consider is, you know, for 1080p, um, 30, um, I would look at about six, um, It's it, you know, six megabits a second um, is, is usually what I consider. And that is about three times the number of pixels at 30 frames a second. So that's the, you know, that's kind of my, 
my um and so so if i move down to 720 i would i can move that down to four megabits um so and as i start to build that ladder now i might want to have one step above that so six is a solid 1080 and i might give you an eight eight meg or 10 meg uh solution as part of that ladder but then you keep on building that ladder down to where you're about one meg a second um to, to make that to make that happen i don't really i have to admit I don't do a lot of really low bandwidth because there's just not that many people with that anymore. Um, but you can go down to like a 240, um, you know, P solution that's at 400 or 500 K per second um, to to do that. So so it just depends on um, on what your uh, what you're trying to what you're trying to produce there. Sports, obviously, or anything high motion is really going to be sensitive to it. So anywhere you're moving the camera a lot, editing the camera, doing lots of playback, having a lot of motion, you're going to want to turn that that bandwidth up or at least have that upper end um, that's available to you. Um, talking heads can you can get away with a lot. That's <laughs> what we do here. Uh, you can you can you can slow that down a lot and and take advantage of the the lower bandwidth opportunities. Yeah, for a long time, I've had a clip video clip that was a tree silhouetted against the sky with the wind blowing everything around. And it was really, really hard to encode. Uh, so that was always my test. If I saw blocking and the, just couldn't keep up with it, I know I had to increase my sampling rate. And uh, John Preto? I just want I just want David to note that his math is wrong here. If he's transmitting video at 2.5 kilobits per second, he's got the best compression on the planet. Kilobits, not bytes. Isn't that a reasonably no mega? Should be I took mega. it as a temp. I just took it as a typo and just went to yeah. Right. Oh, so, okay. So, so anyway, so, yeah. megabits per second. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Uh, thank you. Let's move. Next question. Jason Robert Shaw from Sarasota, Florida, has a question for Zoom presentations. Is white text on a black background or black text on a white background? Better for slides, not just for aesthetics and readability. Does it make a difference for Zoom performance? Alex. Uh, you know, I think that in general it does because it doesn't require as much. You, you won't see it. One thing that doesn't, that Zoom doesn't like is gradients. You know, <laughs> so, so gradients, uh, lots of soft colors, uh, lots of transitions. And anything that's trying to take advantage, trying to give you a, an efficient stream is going to tend to break up a little bit in that area. So, uh, so that's something you want to kind of think about. Now, I tend to... I'm still trying to figure out whether I move over to uh, white on black as far as, as right now I mostly do black on white. And the reason that I do that mostly is because I'm matting a lot of things. I shoot, I, I render a lot of things out of mid-journey for my, my presentations. I find images on the web that I want to use. And it's much easier, the, the, the alpha channels, uh, or not the alpha channels, but the matting, what it sits over top of is typically white. And so it's 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 easier to find images that are over white than the over black, and so as a result, when I when I use the um, uh, remove background in Keynote, I get a little white edge, and so I have a tendency to use white backgrounds because that white edge becomes really not something you notice. Whereas if you do it over black, you'll tend to see that white edge, and so it's more of an aesthetic decision on my part. Um, you know, so I, that's why I do it. I'm not, you know, I think that I think it's probably easier on everybody's eyes for me to, to do uh, lighter on on dark, but it just doesn't look as nice. Back in the broadcast days, I was pretty specific about this because the way televisions work, they're additive color as opposed to subtractive. Subtractive is things like print where the light hits the page and the page absorbs everything except what it's going to reflect back to you. So that's subtractive color. Additive color is like a TV where you have R, G, and B and you have three guns firing. To get white, you have to fire all three of them at maximum. And so it's going to hit pixels and generate white light. 
Consequently, I always thought that black, where everything was not firing, was much easier to achieve than white, where you have to maximize the amount of power to light up all those pixels. Now, we have moved away from mostly CRT screens, and we're in the world of LCD screens and things like that. And I'm not sure the delta between the amount of power it takes to turn a chip one color or another is much at all. I just carry that over from my old days, and I always think that darker backgrounds with uh, lighter text stand out and is easier on the eye for me, provided you have enough resolution, particularly if an overdriven screen of either kind is outdoors. I find it sometimes harder to read dark type on a white background than to reverse it out and read light type on a dark background. But that's just me. That might be an aesthetic choice. Next question. Here's Douglas Carmichael asking, I'll be meeting with the IT media technology lead at a local private school next week, and I'd like to get to know him. But I also am interested in learning about the local tech and media market where I live. How can I make the most of that meeting? Alex, some suggestions. Well, I'd start to ask if he knows those things. I, I don't know if he, you know, I don't know if, if you find a tech lead at a private school, how much they're going to know about the the local tech media market. They just may not have any of that information. So I would pretty much, um, I would kind of probably go around very carefully around that because asking and pointed questions about that, you know, I think that what he's going to be interested in talking about is what he's doing. (laughs) So I would start with most of the, most of the discussion, just finding out what they do and how they do it and what their challenges are and how, what their solutions are. And then probably near the end of the meeting, I'd probably maybe ask them some stuff about the community in general. Yeah, one more. Let's sneak in the next question. And it's for me. I'm asking, uh, the Sony FX30 seems to be a great camera for the money, although a bit high on the high, a bit on the high side for a webcam. What features appeal to you the most? Alex? Uh, the autofocus. <laughs> so a picture quality to autofocus, but the autofocus has been the thing that's, that really made it work for me. Yeah, both Mitch and Alex. Mitch was just demonstrating that. Mitch, you want to do it officially? I, I'm just kind of bragging a little bit here when we talk about autofocus. And, of course, I've been talking about autofocus for about two years, and it's finally catching on. So I'm kind of like, okay, autofocus, Sony, yeah. But uh, what's interesting is that the camera that Alex is using is the FX30, and it's making a pretty good picture. In fact, it's at least as good as my picture, which is done with an FX3, which uh, is a, a camera that's about twice, maybe three times the cost of the FX30. So it's interesting to see what Sony is doing. They're making more and more cameras that can be used as webcams um, at a better price point. So maybe you're setting a new uh, a high mark there for us, Alex. Those cameras have been really impressive. I mean, Sony, from the days they started with the uh, A1 original camera, I remember taking that out into a dark scene and it with a long exposure, the amount of light that that chip was able to resolve into a decent picture uh, just astonished me. I mean, my jaw dropped. It was so amazing to be able to do that well in low light. Now, that wasn't video shooting. It's gotten better in the video things, and it's still on a superb low light camera. But I just thought, boy, this technology has really, really changed. A couple of notes here as we get to where we're going. Uh, Friday's show tomorrow, loading in and loading out. Uh, This is something that is near and dear to the heart of anybody who's had to do remote production for a long period of time. Uh, Knowing how 
you're going to get in and out of a venue, of a shooting location, uh, of a bluff in the desert, doesn't matter. And, and particularly, I know a lot of us have had to load in and load out of convention center ballrooms and things like that. And it's a delicate thing. Uh, the more of it you do, you more, the more you realize there are hundreds of pitfalls. And getting experience in this, uh, particularly as you move from the stage where you're doing bags into doing cases and things like that, uh, as your gear, uh, gear grows, the complexity of your load-ins grow. So uh, we'll be talking about things like site surveys and carts and cases and uh, all the ins and outs of loading docks. And believe me, it is a huge deal. Uh, the Getting to know how to work with a loading dock. I remember pulling up in, a, in my, I think, uh, Honda Element thinking, well, I'll just go to the loading dock and load in. But the loading dock was set up for semi-trailers, and it was so high that we ended up having to offload everything and cart it up two sets of steps just to get to the top of the loading dock. So it's it's one of those things that the more production you do, the more you realize how important these things are. All right. We are excited today to welcome our special guests. They've been here with us twice before, and we're really Excuse me. <laughs> it's going to be fabulous to see them again. Uh, Jeffrey Orthwine and Andrew Sullivan, our dear friends who came in back, I think, in both February and March of last year. And we're talking about their exciting new production, I Don't Want to Drink Your Blood Anymore, one of the great titles of all time, in my opinion. And uh, it's fabulous to have them back. They're going to give us an update on what's been happening. They shot this, I guess it was about 14, 15 months ago and have been in post-production ever since. And we're going to talk to them about the uh, process they've gone through. So, Jeffrey, Andrew, how are you doing? Good morning. Doing well. How about yourself? Fabulous. Yeah. Great to have you guys back again. We chose the title because Oppenheimer was taken. Otherwise... <laughs> <laughs> Well, one word versus a lot of words, but I can't, I, more people I've told your title to and they went, what a great title for a movie. It, it really gives a, a brand promise right off from the bat. So we're really excited about that. So give give us a little update. What's been happening? This is, must have been a very exciting year for you. Uh, it's, yeah, it's been very yeah. exciting. Um, there was a, a big, uh, exciting shoot uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, that was the coldest spring ever. Uh, I'll say, uh, Boston, north of Boston, uh, does not get springtime, uh, as early as anticipated. <laughs> so there was a challenge just in terms of the temperature, let alone you were dealing with COVID and all sorts of other things yeah, that I were mean, undoubtedly challenges for this. Yeah, it's, uh, all, and we'll talk about it a lot today, or if the audience wants to talk about it, is just the production itself. I mean, just 17, a 17 day shoot is a very tight shoot on any film, whether you have millions and millions or whether you have hundreds of thousands or whether you have tens of thousands. And so um, doing that where you're shooting day for night, night for night, switching, whether you're starting a shoot at 7 or 8 a.m. or you're starting a day and a half later at 8 p.m. to 9 a.m., right? So it's um, um, there's a lot of things that just kind of mess with your head and just kind of uh, you're, 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 you're working against nature. Uh, it's not nurture or nature. It's neither of those when, yeah. you're, when you're trying to make a vampire film on, a, on an indie budget. It's uh, when the lead character uh, can't be in sunlight. That means most of the crew can't be either. Uh, so being nocturnal for, uh, for the better part of a month 
had some uh, physical ramifications uh, and psychological. I mean, every, everyone will pull an all-nighter every once in a while, but doing it six nights a week is um, is a different experience. So you did that practically. You were in, I assume, a house kind of location. So was it just easier to shoot at night so that you didn't have to deal with any exterior light rather than blocking it off from interior spaces? It was a it was a combination. Uh, yes, we were primarily most of the film uh, takes place in in one house, uh, and we could you know black out windows and and do day for night without much trouble. Uh, but there was uh, due to scenes that are you know like on doorsteps and and that kind of stuff. There there was stuff that we had to do you know practically after dark. Um, but uh, so we we had control of a certain amount. Um, uh, especially the advantage of, of one location, but it was it was still a slave to the elements. Yeah, and it was different techniques, whether it was blocking out a window here, tenting the kitchen windows. I mean, it depended on how big this house. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have a house that um, literally was there for the Salem witch trials. I mean, it's a 400-plus-year-old house that has its own, which is incredible because we just wanted a house that felt old, and this house felt old. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible thing to have a house like that, but you're also just aware that when you have grips and assistants running around with heavy metal things, yeah. you're trying not to bang into floors that the owners will know every single crack. And also just like when you have a, a dolly on it, just like you're hearing you're hearing those floors because those floors have been heard for four centuries. Organic creaking. Audio cleanup on the on the floor creaking. Yeah. Uh when, when we do our final audio mix. Uh, and yeah, every C-stand that gets placed down on a on a wood floor is just... <laughs> Fascinating. Well, you know, so safety is something... I, I, I probably sh- should have started with just letting you guys give a kind of a quick slug line of what the feature is about so that everybody kind of understands the, the world we're going in. So it's a vampire in the movie, but tell us a little more about what you're trying to accomplish here with the film. Uh, sure. Most important question of the day, Alex took care of, but it is Oppenheimer 70 millimeter, a real IMAX. <laughs> Best way to see it. You're not going to get a good seat for at least five days. So you're aiming for next Wednesday or Thursday probably is your best shot right now. Also, our runtime's like 2.15, so it easily fits on the platter. Oh, yeah. Not, yeah, a, no. not, a, not a question at all. Um, Love it. Uh, so the film is about a vampire who suffers from agoraphobia. So, um, she is a vampire who doesn't want to leave her house, um, which makes it challenging and doesn't want the world to disturb her, but the world won't leave her alone and also needs to feed. Um, so her, her challenge is literally she does not want to leave, leave her house to feed, to um, interact with humans or anyone else. And it's uh, um, kind of a um, our first film, Boca, which was about a couple who went to Iceland to get away from it all and then the world disappears we like lo-fi sci-fi. We like lo-fi horror. We like basically character pieces that take something um, that is large on a genre scale and try to shrink it down as small as possible. So let's talk about scale. How many crew, how many cast, What what's the kind of scope of the film in, that you're trying to achieve here? Right. So the, the crew was, um, it, it varied somewhere in that 30 to 40 range, I would say. Is that with a- I, w- I would, I mean, production crew, uh, we averaged 20 to 25 on the bigger days. Um, yeah. And plus yeah. cast, that does not include cast. And then with cast, it's um, on any given day, it was anywhere from one to... 10 cast members with a lot of it being twos and threes at most. Um, so that's a big lift for craft services and everything else on set to just manage that many people. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, you bring up craft services. That's a that's a, a, a key point. Uh, we had a snack table in the basement of the house, but uh, catering was uh, kind of kind of a challenge because uh, most of the um, most of the set was uh, you know active active sets. Most of the house was active sets. Sorry, I've got a I've got a photo of uh, one of our uh, one of our um, crew meals uh down there this this is the the crew on location in the backyard uh right against this uh salt marsh on the coast of massachusetts uh that was that was one of the better days actual days uh where we could eat but it was yeah you know just and and that that yard was a set uh other days uh of the shoot so it looks like the last supper that's not what we were going for but it's um Uh, but yeah, I mean, look at certain nights where it's cold, you are just in a garage, three tables around space heaters. Right. I mean, there's, um, um, Jeffrey, I think I see you in the deity position there in the middle of one side of the table. (laughs) Having both hands up. Yeah. Just, we didn't, I don't know. Jeff produced the film. You're never going to know who's going to betray a producer, who the producer is going to betray. So it's always, (laughs) it's it's close to last supper there. Um, the person so, furthest away from Jeff is going to be the one fired that day. So I mean, there you, uh, oh, there's a lot of symbolism in the film. Is that what I'm understanding here? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> lunches were a uh, uh, method. Yes. So tell us a little bit. It's been ten. No, it's been more than that. It's been 14 months since we've seen you. Uh, is there an overarching theme that has emerged in the post-production process that has been either challenging or glorious or whatever? What What's the feeling been like over this period of time when you're getting into the nitty gritty of editing, mastering, doing all the things you're doing now? You know, we were talking the other day uh in in terms of like overarching themes uh what applied uh what's applying in post is the same as what applied on set uh which is uh the things you thought were going to be hard are hard and the things that you thought were going to be easy are hard and the things that are simple never are um so uh, whatever amount of pre-production and prep, like, yeah, do it, do it all, uh, because you're going to find your way into other bigger problems. Um, you know, it's the only way, it's the only way to keep from capsizing is prep. Um, so yeah, just, just a bunch of sneak attacks. Right. I mean, definitely the stereotype everyone likes to talk about is that your film's made three times, right? It's made at the script level. It's made at production. It's made at post-production. Um, but that, that almost takes away from the fact that the script and production both are telling you the truth, right? Like you can fix, you can fix things in post, but the truth is still the truth. If you, if you had 80 pages, that was one character where it should have been 15 pages or you didn't have your character arcs in the script. Again, we can do, we can do some things to finesse, but, and to lean on against us either to enhance a script or production or to challenge those things. But there's an honesty in each of those categories, and it always makes it seem like post can just be the great healer. It can do a lot, but your facts are still your facts. Your story, your character arcs, your your thesis for what the film actually is, how production went. Um, there's only so much you can do in post. And it's also, we, of course, we want to fix things in post, but we really just dislike the term fix it in post. I mean, we're much more fix it in pre. If you can fix it in pre-production before you even get to production, that that usually is where our heads are at. And so that even if things go wrong and they go wrong every single day of production, maybe you fixed enough things in pre that less things go wrong on the Wednesday at 2 a.m. when you need something to go right, right? So, I mean, um, that doesn't mean that solves all the story. That doesn't mean that 
Um, when a location falls through last minute, uh, that's not an issue, or you didn't shoot as much as you want to shoot on a day or in the 17 days. Um, but that's that's kind of where our heads are at in this. The uh, the just quickly to follow up on that, the the thing the <clears throat> the magical lesson for me uh, through this, and to a certain extent on Boca as well, but but it's been very uh, clear and present on this, is uh, I, I just refer to it as story math, uh, and story math is not elementary math. Story math is not two plus three equals five. Um, you know, it's it's not about uh, at, it, we need a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that because it's not that binary. It's not, it's not that simple. Um, it's mostly you add a, a little bit of this flavor and it activates that flavor. Um, and so, so a fix is not always about uh, you know, simply uh, adding or subtracting. It's about how do we how do we remix this in a way that that activates this flavor. Interesting, Andy. I, I, as a director, as the director of this movie, particularly, what were the the alterations from the scripting point where you thought you were going to make this movie this way, and then you found sounds like you were finding things along the way that changed some of those beats or arcs or story points. Can you talk a little bit about that process of having to adapt to the actual realities from what you originally envisioned? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a precious filmmaker and maybe that can also be seen as a bad thing, right? So I don't I'm willing to walk away times from a scenes or shots or or beats or other things. And again, sometimes that can be a, a big problem because you need certain things to protect the story, to protect production, protect post-production. Um, there were enough times where after we would get the shots we we th- we were aiming for, I, I would call for basically Andy B-sides now. And it would just be like, just certain things I wanted of just quiet moments, especially because a lot of this film is about a vampire by yourself. And so if I could create just imaginary scenes that aren't on the script of just someone like just leaning against a wall, holding her knees, I don't know where that's going to be in the film, but I now know it's going to be in the film. If I see someone on the bed struggling just to not even know what to do next, there, there, there are a lot of these kind of quiet 15 second to minute um, pieces that aren't in the script at all, but they're in the script because just the story set, like they're not written in the script, but their feelings in the script. And so it, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to say you're looking for surprises and definitely it's always exciting when you're seeing the cast give you something you didn't think about before, but a lot of the surprises are actually a bit more focused than that. Like I'm, I'm still looking for things that I know will fit within the world. So, I mean, a lot of it are kind of these quieter shots. Um, when I'm filming, I usually start with where the actors want to start. I, I actually, unless they're just confused about that the script's not coming through to them or it feels very different character-wise than where they were before. I mean, I'm always meant to be the tone cop on set so they can feel like they've got the freedom within a parameter. But um, I always start where they are and then we kind of tweak from there. Um, nice answer. And Jeffrey, as producer role, when that hat is on you, you're trying to protect Andy and give him the space to make these creative choices. What were the kind of problems that you ran into that you said, listen, I got to keep this out of my director's head so that he can be effective and do what he's supposed to do for this film? Uh, yeah, the there's a, a lot of things that bubble up, you know, some, some uh, bigger cracks in the production and then, you know, the constant noise uh, of, of everyday uh, things that are, that are constantly happening. Um, there was, uh, you know, one, <laughs> one uh, big, uh, big thing that, uh, you know, I, I tried to keep off his radar, although at a certain point it, it, it we couldn't, it was just, there was a key prop um, that, 
what ended up being hard to locate. Um, and you know, I, I, I had a chat with our uh, uh, production designer a couple days before the scene. She let us know we're having trouble locating this thing, and it's not an easy prop to find. So you know, it's not um, not something that's carried in a prop house. Uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to say specifically what it is because I don't want to I don't want to spoil the scene. Um, but uh, but then it just became a scramble of like we're just out there on Facebook, we're out there on social media, like calling everyone we know. Hey, do you have this thing? Do you you know? Um, and it was we'll call it, was, it the MacGuffin, it was, but something uh, yeah, important that yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was a thing where like okay, you know, I I wanted to be on set with Andy, um, you know, uh, uh, as much as basically for every scene shot, uh, supporting him in whatever he needed. And then this was a situation like okay, I'm out. I got to come over here, and I just got to make phone calls because we have to find the MacGuffin. Um, and uh, it, spoiler alert, we found it. You know, we saved the day. Um, but it, it got a little, got a little, t- and that was one where like, I'm making phone calls and I think you walk through the room and you're like, yeah, sorry, we're, we're going to get this thing. I promise. Uh, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't keep it completely off his radar. Uh, but it was, it was very much that sort of thing. It's step aside, let him focus on the scene. I'll worry about tomorrow. But it's, 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 it, and it's bigger in that. in the fact that the first thing Jeff does is talk with Dana, who's our AD, who the reason we have a film is because Dana was our AD. Yes. He talks to her and be like, can we switch this day around? I know there yep. were a hundred reasons why the day was meant to go shoot this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene. Yep. Can we move it? So this is the last scene. So we have a fighting chance to be able to do this today. We can do it tomorrow, but that'll cost other things. And, and Jeff is kind enough not to say this, but it probably is almost job number one. His job is to protect me from me. And I, I don't, I, it's not a joke. It's literally like, it's just um, my instincts in a moment, or I will be, I'm too practical at times. So I will be aware of production. I'll be aware of clock. Like I shouldn't be aware of the clock. That's Dana's job. She runs. It's disrespectful if I'm thinking about time too much. I shouldn't be aware of certain things about production. I can't help it to a certain level. Like I, like I try not to find out about it all the time, but if I'm just hearing, um, buzzing or things and so jeff a lot of the times right i mean there's there's a reason we can work well together and we can it can be exhausting but i'll always choose the exhausting part which is i i i partly like to work with jeff is because he will beat me up and i don't mean that in a mean way i just mean like like we can be brutal to each other and we can be grumpy in the moment and we can be grumpy for two hours later but we'd always rather work with each other knowing we can get through that quickly right like it's not it's not personal. It's not like he can just, he, he knows I'm going to roll my eyes at something. And yet he still knows he should tell me that thing in that moment. Right. Like that's not, um, and that's always who you need with you. Jeff and I, something about this production, which I don't, I don't know what it'll look like next time, but Jeff and I are the only two people worked with each other. Like Jeff and I worked with each other on the last film. We worked with none of the other people involved on this film before. This right was the here. first time. Some of them had worked with each other, which was great, and they had rhythms, but it was the first time we had worked with anyone else. And so making sure that our language with each other could translate and that theirs could translate to us. Nice. Well, I, I really wanted people to hear kind of the relationship part of this and the kind of things that you don't think about from the outside. If you're thinking about making an indie film, you're, you're talking about the real world practicalities of onset relationships, things that are challenges, things that cause people to blow up or be comfortable in their roles. And that really is the world of indie film production. I think it's yeah. all those things. I mean, I, yeah. I think a couple key things that and it's true of less films, but we definitely set it up this way, which is... Um, no a-holes on set. This, that's, that's rule number one for us, which is don't be a jerk. If you have an issue with someone, talk to them individually or bring a producer involved into it, but don't make 
not have scenes there. We are open to people's ideas. Um, but it was important to, for everyone on the crew to understand two things and that I understood these two things as well. Um, that Dana ran our set, our AD runs the set, not me. She runs the set. I, I, I come to the set. I work on the set. I do the best I can, but it's her set. And that Jeff and Raz are two producers. They, they were above everything else. And so it's not, I'm open to ideas from lots of people and, and may the best idea win, not just my idea. And so we want a structure for that. But if it just comes at me five different ways and doesn't kind of go through Raz and Jeff or or Dana, the whole thing just kind of tumbles. Yeah. Um, and so making sure that you try we're we're people like flat organizations normally, but it's just like you need some hierarchy just to make sure to help everyone to understand how to have the conversations that they want to have. Well, and, I'll and that's say, why we talk so much about this relationship stuff on the show when okay. we're talking about this. Jeff, real quick, and then I want to Alex to get Alex involved in this and some other. Yeah, people. yeah. Just just quickly to follow up on that. Two things. Yes, Raz is not here with us today. Um, he's uh, in Rhode Island, but in all the producing stuff, Raz and I did together. You know, he's he's in this. Uh, you know, as as much as I am, uh, he's just not here on camera today. Um, and then just uh, on that other point, yeah, I mean. I think we get lost in a lot of like uh, working on scripts and working on story and getting the camera and the tech and the everything. And, and I think the most effective thing that everyone should be practicing every day is just communication is learning how to, how to clearly communicate directly. Um, and part of that is, I'm going to tell you something, this is not an emotional statement, but you know, you're going to, I know you're going to have an emotional reaction, but that I'm, I'm not attacking you, but you need to know this. And also, you know, knowing that what not to say, like there is a huge power in um, you know shutting the up um, because because it keeps again from my perspective I had to keep noise out of his head and so knowing which conversations to have and which conversations to not have is is critical. Wise words, Alex. Thoughts? Hey guys, a couple questions. Um, how 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 did the storyboards work? So did the, we saw all the storyboards that you worked on before? How do they line up with uh, with what you ended up shooting? So I mean, right. So we 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 showed you last time we built our storyboards in Storyboarder, and, and then we lost we, your video. Oh, there we lost second. picture. We can still hear you. Okay, uh, stand by on that. Look at my look oh, at our photos. Yeah, there we go. There's the photo. We see the photos. All right. So, uh, but I, I can still talk storyboards here. So we started in the program Storyboarder. It's a free program. Um, neither of us are artists, and so that allowed us to have 3D models, bring mm -hmm. it all in. Uh, we'd export it into one of two places: either Final Cut Pro when we were trying to make a movie version, which ended up being like a uh, a thirty second, a thirty minute version of the film in just storyboards, and then we also um, import it into Shotlister to make the literal story, like our shot list per day. Yeah. Um, the the challenge, I would say, our challenge was is our storyboarder is a concept piece that does have shot lists in it, but it has way too many shots. So I mean, every day you do this anyways, but you definitely did it with our shot list, which is you were just paring down the shot list um, in order to. Uh, just try to have the shots that you believe. <laughs> Again, filmmaking is brutal where it's like you have all these ideas for all these shots and you have a lot more shots than you're going to get done in a day. Um, so you were just trying to figure out like how many shots can you really get done in this 12-hour period? You're trying not to go over overtime too many nights in a row because every time you go overtime, it affects budgets for every single department for the cast for everything. And so we have some of that planned in, but um, you're always trying to figure out... Um, what shots do we need? I'm a more intimate filmmaker, so I tend not to live as much in wides. You need some wides to be able to explain geography and location things, but I, I like I like closeness wherever I can. Um, 
I'm a fan of the Wonder, but Wonders can really lock you in, especially when you're doing character pieces and things. So, I mean, um, we we had our plan every day, and every day we had to adapt and decide what shots were we dropping, what shots were we changing because of where light was, what shots were we adding because we dropped two other things and we needed something to make up the story. I'll say, uh, in regard to storyboarder, uh, it, it came out in three specific ways. Uh, what Annie said about putting things into shot lister so we could uh, literally build a priority list um, then exporting just the, the TIFFs so we could build a, a pre-edit in Final Cut. We had a, we had a did you say this, 42-minute uh, yeah. cut of the film using storyboards. And then uh, while I don't like to read and I, I try and stay away from practical um, physical media as much as possible, I did uh, print our storyboards. Uh, and this is, this is literally every uh, board of the film um, so that I could literally just w without having to wrangle technology, this is something I needed physical media, just like, you know what, cross that off. We did it. Any kind of notes, uh, some, some of the timing and, and stuff like that. So what I will say is if you're going to pr print your storyboards, choose a lighter weight paper. <laughs> I just went with the default choice, which is like a 24 pound thing. This thing is ridiculous. Now we have, we have too many storyboards, but like, oh man, just make sure you're printing on the cheap paper. Holy cow. So I mean, two words is, for you, onion skin. That, that again gets yeah. back to the relationship point because I would have to cut this down. I would send it out every single day to DP, to our producers, to AD, to the department heads. Jeff would then kind of look at it versus the larger, the largest version of the storyboards, just to be like, I get why we're cutting this down. I know we need to, I still think we need this shot for an editing stand. Like Jeff would be trying to bring in an editing voice in the shot list. And Una, our DP is also an editor. So it's actually, that's where, that's where some of their common language was of like, oh yeah, we need to transition from this last scene and we need this shot to kind of put the puzzle pieces together here. Um, something else I would say, cause I, um, and I know there's lots of questions and thoughts around mid-journey, um, appropriate nature, and, and all that. I actually, in the past six months, just started just trying to understand it. I hadn't used it before. And so I retrofitted some of um, the shots in this film in mid-journey of just like a young Japanese-American woman sitting at a dining room table, 1978, um, staring at a hot pot by herself, just to see what this would look like. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think the amount of arsenal you have as an indie filmmaker now to be able to make shots and be able to have a level of creativity and specificity that I can bring to our production designer. I can bring to our art director. I can bring to costumes and things. Uh, I mean, we've always had slides. We've always had photos. I showed those last time, but um, it's amazing. The level of conception, uh, just, just what you can conceive before basically shooting anything these days is incredible. And this is the oh, this is the call sheet and the and the storyboards there. Yeah. So just every day for the seventeen days of shooting, um, every day I, I see that the the camera's going again. So Jeff's just worked on that. Yep. Um, but every day, basically, all the crew is given this, and it's the specifics. Again, if you haven't been on a set, the specifics are where are you parking that day. We can't have literally eleven different cars and and buses and things at this one person's house. So just where's the five minute parking from there? Um, who's picking everyone up? Who's driving as, as the director? And I know it sounds silly and it was silly to me, but I just went with it because our AD said so. I never drove to set. I never drove from set. The AD did every single day because they just didn't want to be thinking about driving. They wanted me to think about what I'm going to film that day, right? And so um, it's not to be precious for a director. You were trying to you're trying to protect the best version of the film. And so decisions are being made every single day. What protects the best version of the film?
what uh, what cameras did you use? Uh, we used the Alexa Mini was our uh, A camera. Uh, we used the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras, B camera, uh, and then sort of the C camera, uh, which may it was probably going to end up in the film a couple of times is uh, Sony uh, sixty four hundred, mm-hmm. little mirrorless guy, um, but mostly mostly the A cam. And we're as as the edits coming together there'll be a couple shots we'll pick up and we'll rent an anamorphic lens and camera and just like just do a couple basic outdoor type shots of seasonal things and such to to be able to add within there and we had a very pretty beautiful creamy lens package that was insane for this film Um, what what lenses did you use they were uh uh cook anamorphic primes yeah Mm -hmm. and they were they were pretty yeah and and uh what mics and recorders did you end up using for this uh, the, uh, bunch of Sennheiser booms and, and lavaliers, uh, going through a sound devices, um, yeah. recorder. Yeah. That's great. How did so, you handle archiving? Was it, is it something that was a, a big, like when you start yeah. shooting and getting on? Yeah. There was, there was some data coming in. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, our, uh, our friends at OWC, uh, sent us some rage, which were pretty great. I've got one right here, actually. This is one of the smaller ones, the uh, the OWC Gemini. Um, so this is a 32 terabyte RAID. It's just a standard two bay drive. Um, this is sort of our second backup. Our primary drive, uh, which is too big to hoist onto the desk, is the Thunder Bay. Uh, it's got eight drives, uh, super fast Thunderbolt four ingest um, via MacBook Pro. Um, so yeah, we would just be constantly uh, sending cards down. Uh, to back up, you know, to ingest and then have two backups. So we had three copies. Um, and I brought this back to my hotel room every night. Um, just to have one off site. Um, so that's always fun. Uh, and, then, and then Andy, you said you, you cut it all, you, you were cutting every night to try to kind of piece it together. Oh, no, no, no. I, that was that was more storyboards. Um, oh, got it. Okay. And just shot listing and everything else. So no, we like, Sure. Again, on a film this size, it's really hard to kind of have someone trying to put assembly down at the same time. I mean, that's the dream, right? To be able to see, but where Jeff and I just had to have that honest conversation with ourselves is like, if they found a hole, what could we do about it? Right. When you're shooting 17 days, when you have it, like, right. Yeah. You can fix a little bit, but, but in fixing that you were giving up other things, right? So as much as it would be great to see some assembly and see what's working, I mean, if a shot looked beautiful, we'd bring some cast and crew down to the basement, let them see like some of the successes coming out of the film just to kind of boost morale because you're always trying to boost morale. Um, But yeah, we didn't edit at the same time. How how much did you find you changing the script on site? Um, I mean, there definitely are. It's not a lot, but there, I mean, there's, there were a few scenes where we were just like, we don't think we need, the, uh, well, one, we had to ask ourselves, do we need the scene? Why do we need the scene thing? So, I mean, there were scenes that were cut. There weren't scenes that were added. There were character moments that were added, as I mentioned before. Um, but you're you're talking, uh, if, if the script was like 83 pages, it gets down to 78, or if it's 78, it gets down to like 75, right? Like, it's not... You're, you're really not tweaking it too much. You are, you're definitely working with your actors. Um, if a line of dialogue feels too corny, like hearing dialogue again when they're in the takes, like if less can do it, great. If something can feel more authentic or what sounded good on paper doesn't sound great in their voice or... I think it was more economizing of shots. Yeah. there were, we, had, we had five boards built for a scene. And it's like, nope, there's a wonder. Right. You know, 
Um, and, and that was mostly scheduled. It was mostly like, you know what? We got we to bang this out. So we're doing it in one. Yeah, and even the scenes we gave up, it was schedule-based. I mean, it was, right. yeah. again, we, we, we didn't give up anything that felt like it had to be there, but it was all schedule-based. Very nice. And Mitch, uh, no, did Mitch have questions? Yeah. I th- thought he did. No. So it looks like we get to go to our actual questions, unless you guys have another topic that you that was really outside of the box that surprised you that you think everybody would be really excited to know about. I, I mean, one, that one thing I'll just add to when you asked about um, what surprised you in post, um, it doesn't surprise, but it's a level of gratitude. Because when you were looking at things, you were looking at what Layla, our production designer, which was one of our MVPs, like, yeah. Everything she did, how you take that house to make it look like a 1978 house, her and her department. When you're watching it, you were grateful because you remember at 4 a.m. you weren't sure you were going to get the shot. And Dana, our AD, and Una, our DP, fought to get the shot, right? Like, you were grateful that sound, you know that a 1970s refrigerator makes gigantic sounds. Um, and um, you were grateful that our that Josh got the sound from it, right? So, I mean, you're reminded we all make mistakes. We all had issues. This thing maybe wasn't focused the way you wanted or a take wasn't done the way, or I made a mistake. Um, but you're nothing. You're just reminded how often that you got to work with people who are great at their jobs and gave everything they could for a month on this film. Nice. Plus I'm now seeing the value of fluorescent vests in a way that I never did before. Oh yeah. So I mean, this is, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about this day cause it was a brutal day. Um, like most of them are, um, so we're shooting outside the house, two of our characters. We had multiple scenes that night outside the house. We had to bring cops on board because they're shutting down the road for um, four hours. They're paid by every four-hour shift. And so ADs and producers, and again, they're, um, we just didn't have the money to make that an eight-hour shift, right? So, I mean, you're racing the clock. You're creating lighting outside for um, – it's cold that night for Sierra um, and Mickey to – to shoot the entire time they're champs about it but it's it's cold we're all wearing vests so that we can just again always on crew and and we haven't talked about this yet it is safety first it's everything else a far behind second if you don't it's irresponsible to think about it any other way right it is safety first always and so if someone wants to roll their eye and go i don't want to put a vest on it doesn't matter it's just like safety 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 no matter what um and that's how it's designed so that night was just four hours with the cop because we were just walking to the road almost for like 30 seconds of the scene but you have to just make sure you can stop the cars for that or slow them down for that and then we also still would have another three hours outside for the other scenes we were trying to get done from midnight to 3 a.m where their characters are yelling at each other basically (laughs) you're hearing echoes i mean it was it's it's your neighbors like watching from they weren't in the shot. It was nice that they were nice about it. But it's like they're watching from midnight to 3 a.m. as we're shooting some of this stuff. Um, other thing I'd say about safety again, this was we were in that weird point of like COVID opening where we could make this film um, and we'd wear masks inside and we would, except for the actors when they were obviously shooting and we would try to be spaced out enough outside where we could have it where people didn't have to wear masks the whole time. But um um, one of the most, her- just again, um, I'm fortunate in my life that, that COVID didn't affect people closest to me. So I know it affected people much more than it affected me on this set. We had to have everyone tested. Um, and that's just a scary day when you just see that box and everyone's tested and you wait 24 hours to find out how many crew 
how many department heads are you losing? How many crew members? How many cast? And we didn't lose anyone, but um, that is a... It's a nail-biter. It's a tense yeah, day. I bet it was. We have a ton of questions that have piled Wait. up, so let's get to the Mitch. What do we got? All right, starting off with Mickey Makachur in Manila, Philippines, asking, 17 days. How many pages per day was that? And the page count consistent, or were there slower or longer days? Yeah, there. it is... Um, <laughs> Some days you're barely getting a page that might be four scenes even because there's a lot. um, And some days if you're maybe you get up to five, we had to do five and a half pages a couple days because some days you barely had a page. So you're really having to like it roughly four to to six days on average. Yeah, I mean, sorry, four to six pages per day on average. Right. The the average page counts probably four point two five is what you need to hit. But you are having days where you're barely hitting a page, um, especially if it's like driving outside and you're putting camera rigs on cars and you're trying to put cameras outside for cars to drive by. Um, those are really slow days. Again, and since a decent portion of this film is about a vampire by herself, that's not dialogue. And dialogue's much quicker to shoot. That's just paragraphs of description of what Aiko will be going through. Um, and it takes a lot longer to shoot that um, in terms of it. So, I mean, we... Your train average 4.25, but we had a lot of one page or one and a half page days. Really quickly before we get to the next question, how long do you think the runtime is going to end up being? We're at uh, 92 minutes right now. Yeah, and uh, that's good. credits and things, but I think we'll end up around the lower end there, yeah. 89 to 94 minutes, somewhere in that. And that's, again, when you're doing a story that's somewhat about an individual vampire, um, you want to, you just, you shouldn't run long for long sake. Like you need it to be able to tell its story. But, um, and though, again, this is more the practical side because story is king and you should make a film for what it is. You also have to be aware that people are thinking on iTunes at eight 30 at night, what movie length am I willing to watch to watch a movie in a single, a single thing. Right. And that's, that's changed. That used to be two hours. Um, and you'd go to the theaters and things you'd maybe you'd watch it at home on a Friday night. Now that's 85 minutes, it's 90 minutes, it's 95 minutes. And so um, that's, again, not our guiding direction for the film we're making, but you shouldn't ignore that either. Perfect. Next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Do you work with the Mass Film Office and do local film offices make a difference in planning or production? Yes and yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, simple enough. Massachusetts has a fantastic uh, tax incentive for filmmakers. That was a draw. Um, We worked with them a lot. We are still working with them as we, uh, you know, uh, continue that process uh, to to, uh, retrieve our our incentive. Um, So, yeah, local film offices are important. And it's it's near impossible to make it without them. I mean, it really, I I don't know what that looks like. Like, not only are you getting tax incentives, but just... They know cooperation what and not right. standing in your way. Yeah. yeah. Next question. From Chris, uh, Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. How long have uh, Andy and Jeff known each other? Do you credit your long pre-movie making relationship with the quality of your partnership now and going forward? I think it's about 33-ish years. Um, about there, yeah. Yeah. And we both always loved film. I don't know if we always knew we'd be filmmakers, We, but we always loved film. We loved talking film. We loved seeing film. Um, and yeah. yeah. Um, and then it just, there was, on our last film, Boca, just one day, we'd always talk about making a film. And when you know you're going to make a film, that's the challenge is because you don't have to make it because it's always in front of you and things. And 
one day I just sent him like this paragraph about a story in Iceland. And I, I was lame enough to send a keynote presentation with like 20 slides of different pictures where scenes could happen. And a year later we finished production in Iceland. So it doesn't normally go that quick. It probably shouldn't go that quick, but, um, but again, if, if I'm going to be in the trench with someone, Jeff's who I want to be with, because he will be right. He, he, he knows how to bring out my strengths and he knows how to challenge my weaknesses. And I always need someone to challenge my weaknesses. Humility is only ever been a good lesson for me. So if I can have someone who can, who can help me with that, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, you don't don't want to work with friends. That's, that's a double-edged sword. Um, But uh, Andy and I, in addition to being friends for a long, long time, uh, have found the, the right ways of working with each other. There you go. Next question. From Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California, uh, were you able to tie in for power or did you have a generator? And was there any problems with neighbors and sounds coming from the set with larger crew when shooting nights? Yeah, first thing I thought when you said an old house was power. <laughs> what did you run into? Yeah, so th- this actually is a, a shot of our set um, and, and some of the, the uh, period props and uh, uh, set design that we did. Um, because it was an old house and it was, uh, it did pre- present some challenges. Um, power was not really one of them. Uh, we, we were able to uh, uh, get all of our power uh, from the house. Uh, some of the location stuff, uh, there, was, there was a generator, um, but it was not a, not a huge impact on our, on our production. And then uh, uh, noise. I mean, fortunately, we were in a, a semi-rural area of Massachusetts. So uh, we were more concerned about the noise we were making than uh, noise from around. Although uh, cars driving by uh, is always a challenge. Um, and we've got a house near a street, um, which, which made some noise. Um, so, you know, uh, even, even when all the doors are closed and everything else, there is, there are, uh, uh, audio challenges, uh, not so much, not so much power, but, uh, uh the ever, ever present audio challenges. So what you're seeing in these pictures here, um, oh, sorry, sorry. Went, um, uh, because it's always interesting to me how a set comes together. So it's a false wall we created in the kitchen. Again, this is a 400-plus-year-old house. You have to be very delicate with things. Um, they found some. Our, our Layla, um, Layla found designer. this 1970s um, wallpaper that we used. Um, and, I have some right here. Oh, yeah, nice. Because um, we're, we're very much a fan of this wallpaper. Yeah, it's <laughs> lovely. It's, and just every single it's person that came in here gave them nightmares of the kitchen they grew up in. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this it, it spoke to us. And it, again, it's wallpaper that you're putting on the wall, but it's not glued to the wall. So it's it's basically attached to something else that you can easily pull off. Right. Um, the other photo is basically the garage was turned into a prop shop where basically they would be like, which of these five phones do you want? Which of these four lights do you want? Like it's, it's, yeah. it's just me getting to shop basically for my dreams of what the small film looked like. And it was awesome. Nice. Next question. From Kyle Hammond, and he's from Chicago, Illinois. You mentioned starting by working with the actors. How much rehearsal were you able to do, and do you roll on rehearsal? Um, very uh, well. So pre, it's very hard for an indie film to rehearse before you're actually in production because you're normally bringing actors from different places. They're coming off of productions or a break or something else, and so um, we we rehearse basically. We we block and rehearse at the beginning of every basically location or new location within the house that we'd be shooting in a day. Um, We keep it as um, few people as possible. It starts out usually the actors and myself, but I bring Una, our DP, in 
pretty quickly um, so that you don't want the DP to be so far away from the conversation. Um, and the actors were great about having Una there. Um, at, at times, Jeff would be there uh, representing production there just in case there were any other issues. And Dana would be there from um, the assistant director position. But a lot of times you're trying to have that as small as possible. So it'd be myself and the actors to begin with. Then we just add a little bit more and then we bring the crew in for where Dana would take everyone through blocking. Next question. And it's coming from Douglas Carmichael. What camera and recording pipeline did you use and what editing software did you use? Uh, yeah, so that was uh, the Alexa Mini, like I said. Um, our pipeline, uh, I'll talk more about in a second. I'll just jump ahead to uh, post to say that we're cutting in Final Cut Pro, um, which uh, has been going pretty well. The, um, the pipeline, part of, part of our pipeline discussion was uh, uh, dialing in the exact resolution uh, and aspect ratio. We, we knew from the jump we wanted this to be uh, an anamorphic uh, widescreen aspect ratio, which the Alexa is great at, but uh, there is a whole matrix of options for uh, you know format um, and resolution and data rates uh, and whether we're shooting RA RAW, which uh, has its own challenges in Final Cut Pro um, versus uh, capturing a, a ProRes 4x4. Um, which is obviously much, much simpler. I also was uh, uh, looking at, I, I wanted to shoot ProRes RAW, uh, which uh, I, I, I was, was part of the analysis, um, but uh, the RAE doesn't, doesn't output RAW uh, for a recorder. So that uh, it was RAE RAW or nothing. Um, so this is the, the kind of uh, spreadsheet I put together for, um, our uh, camera spec based on what the output uh, resolution would be. Once we de-squeezed, our, our anamorphic uh, squeeze ratio was 2x. So um, we've got some pretty serious uh, resolutions here. Um, and then you you multiply that by an RE raw data rate. And you're looking at filling up uh, 30 terabytes of a, of a RAID. Thanks again, OWC. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Mass. How do you balance shooting sequences for ease of logistics versus maintaining cast mood and story sequence? You 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 balance on logistics. Like you 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 yeah. take the others in mind, and you hope you have a strong enough crew, like Dana Rad and Jeff and Raz producers and the department heads and things, to make the others work. They definitely there will be times where Una RDP would be like can we shoot that later on Monday? Because I think that'll be better for the actors. So it's like lots of people are trying to, to are trying to think of our, keep our actors in mind. And a lot of people are um, trying to think of, again, morale and the crew. You are thinking about those things, but you build it off of logistics first. It's a, it's logistics first story. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the independent level, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, romantic talk about, uh, you know, we, we shot this because the, the mood of the actors was right here. And um, it's all it's all pretty glorious, but it's it's not accessible to the independent filmmaker. I mean, that's the that's the reality of it. When you when you do not have money to buy time, time is the deciding factor uh, uh, for basically every decision. Um, now, the, the challenge, of course, is how do you mesh the clock with your creative intentions? And that is the uh, the filmmaker's challenge. Right. And so, I mean, you would, again, so you try to film three living room scenes with Mickey as Aiko back to back to back. And they take place on 
eight different nights basically in the script at very different points, different costumes, different makeup, different looks for the living room because the film takes place over 50 years from like 78 till now, essentially. Um, and then you'll realize that you've got another actress coming in a week from now that's also doing a living room scene. So even when you try to plan to keep your logistics together, to keep your sets together, you'll then, based on which actors come in and then have to use those sets again, do it all over again a week from now when the next actor comes in to work in the living room with Mickey. Interesting. Next question. From Mickey Macacure in Manila, Philippines, asking, are you going through the festival circuit and are you presenting at a project or film market when and where is the world premiere? The when and where will be the good question. We'll be as curious about as you are, uh, maybe even more so. Um, uh, so, yeah, so come this fall, as we have a lot to edit, and as we're going through posts, we will get in a call with our producers and some other people who we trust to talk about the festival, uh, our festival strategy of what festivals to submit to. Um, both in terms of some of the ones that are known and also some of the ones that are more genre-specific. Um, so, I mean, none are obviously the Southwise, the Sundances, the Tribecas, the Torontos. Um, and and the ones that are more specific are Sturges or Fantasia or Austin, which are more horror genre. And even though this isn't horror straight, they also do horror adjacent um, or character pieces within a genre. So, I mean... We're going to look at all that. We'll look at a strategy of trying to bring on a sales agent to be able to help sell the film. Um, the distribution pipeline changes every single day. So, I mean, it's very different than when we made Boca, and that came out in 2017. Um, in good and bad ways, it's very different now. So, I mean, um, it is, again, important to really have a strategy, not just wish fulfillment. 10,000-plus films are submitted to Sundance, and what, 70-plus get in or something? Um, so, I mean, you better have a strategy for when you get the no's, not when you get the... You need a strategy for the yeses. Very few people get yeses. Lots of people get no's, and you better have your strategy based on the no's. Wise words. Next question. Kyle Hammond is in from Chicago, Illinois. Kyle says, did you say that Storyboarder and Shotlister communicated, or did you have to manually export from one and import into the other? So that was a haze for me, those nights of doing that. I, I, I've been in my head trying to ask myself that question while talking through this, because uh, I think I did a little bit. I'm pretty sure I was able to make it work between the two. I would want to go in and look again, but I and I definitely re like I, I finagled with it once it was in Shotlister. Um, but there are ways you're able to export export out a sh um, storyboarder into Shotlister. And so it wasn't, there was a lot of kind of manual stuff in between, but there were easy ways to get stuff into there. Next question. I've got a question for you guys. Uh, how did you use uh, in-camera effects to reduce your dependence on post? Uh, I don't know if we did a lot of in-camera effects other than like practical makeup effects and, um, you know, planning some certain transitions, uh, you know, uh, not, not a lot of like whip pans or anything like that. Cause that's not the, that's, that, that's not the style of the film. Um, but it was mostly making sure that, um, the, the, the vampire teeth, you know, felt, felt good and real and practical, um, not like uh, digital inserts. Um, but other than that, there wasn't a lot of other camera trickery. And I'm, I'm sure all of you talk about this a lot at times, which is 
CGI, if it's good, or VFX, isn't just VFX practical or or virtual, right? They're the combination of the two. Yeah. So, like, we'd have the practical tooth, but you're going to use a digital to kind of build the tooth up from, like, a normal tooth up to it in the first shot to be able to show the vampire's tooth, and then you're using practical. There's other props where, again, we had some gross things that are practical, but we know there will be some goo or, or sheen or something on it um, from a visual effects aspect of it, right? So, I mean... Um, the things, again, he does it at a thousand times different level, but Christopher Nolan, what I always do admire in Mission Impossible 2, which is they both do a lot of practical, but the level of visual effects that they do around that practical are incredible, right? The the jumping out of an airplane's practical. The sunrise may not be, right? Like, it's just, it's um they're going to go for maximum. And so, I mean, on a small film, uh, what's true is you don't want to go into a small film and then guess what you have to do in visual effects afterwards. You want to know, like, right. this mirror, she can't see herself in a reflection. It's going to be green screen. Do we have a shot of the back of the room so we can put it in the mirror, right? Like, you don't... Yes, you can fix some of those things in post, but every time you have to do something more, it's going to cost us more. Alex, you had a follow-up? Just two questions. Uh, one is, uh, what were the teeth made out of? And two is, what are you using for visual effects? I don't, I, I'm trying to, we actually, there's a guy in Massachusetts who has a magic store. In Salem, makes, Massachusetts. We got, our, we got our vampire fangs from Sam, so, Salem, Massachusetts. So we had a vampire tooth guy who came in and like, like a dentist, they'd be in a chair and he'd like make their molds for he them. molded their, the, um, the actor's teeth. And, and then would make like a smaller and a larger and we'd choose which one. So, I mean, he, he was incredible. It was, I love that we have a vampire teeth guy. And he matched the teeth color. He's, they're, it's they're it's be- awesome. They're beautiful things. Right. It's, it's uh, cool. Uh, what was the second question? <laughs> what, so, what are you doing in visual effects? We haven't uh, completed or really kind of gotten into our major VFX shots right now um, beyond basic compositing. Um, in the edit, I've composited stuff right in Final Cut. Uh, there's a couple things I've done in motion. Um, just as temp stuff, um, although there's one or two of them that temp might, uh, you know, get struck off the VFX checklist. Um, but, yeah, right now we haven't gotten into it. And some of it, again, I don't pretend anything is basic to Jeff's point. Hard is hard, easy is hard. Some of the things that you're going to do in this film, and some of it ideally is easier, is removing her reflection from cabinets and things. Most right. 1970s stuff have a lot of windows in their dining room cabinets or reflections on a teapot or something. And it's a vampire, it doesn't have a reflection, right? So, I mean, there'll be a lot of the little things that we're trying to do and then a couple slightly bigger things within it. Nice. Mitch, you had a quick one? Yeah, would you follow um, previous uh, things like in True Blood where they tilt their head back and then the teeth pop down uh, we, would you follow anybody else's lead on that? Uh, Is there a vampire I mean, language? There, yeah, I mean, there's. <laughs> we did have vampire language. There's nothing's original now, right? There's both original and not original. You're playing at the edges. So, I mean, a lot of the very first thing was um, Mickey, who plays Aiko, who's our vampire in this film. We went with her performance of ways that she'd been thinking about it. You know who's been thinking about the vampire performance more than I have? Mickey has uh, for months. And so we kind of started with her, which was great. I mean, she showed me a couple things ahead of time when we would do our, our video calls and things. But it's like on set, we, we just like you, you trust the people you're working with to see it. We had talked about it and we had talked about that we weren't trying to follow anything else. And she kind of has her mannerisms and her neck ticks and her moving around her mouth um, in terms of it, basically. So 
she created a lot of the language and then we tried to build basically around that. Um, there is a, there is a, I mean, an extensive history of vampire films. So there is a common language. We didn't need to explain certain things, um, but we, there were certain vampire lore elements that we did want to reinforce that are relevant to our film. Right. Um, so uh, it was, it was, and, and it wasn't relying on any specific uh, previous film or series like True Blood. It was more, uh, more what is consistent across all vampire lore. Um, and, and one of them is the, the concept of the good vampire. So much of vampire lore is the good vampire. Um, and our key character of Aiko is um, somewhere in that, uh, you know, behavioral spectrum, I'll say. Interesting way to think about it. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Douglas wants to know, what made you choose Final Cut over Resolve? Um, I've been a Final Cut editor for a long, long time. Uh, I was with it in the transition uh, 10 or 12 years ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk, a lot of discussion on this. But um, for me, it, it just, it, it's very simple. It comes down to the magnetic storyline. There is no uh, elimination of the technological barrier in storytelling, in editing, more than uh, Final Cut Pro's magnetic timeline. Um, Resolve is fantastic. Resolve is very powerful. Resolve is, a, is an entire toolbox, which is fabulous uh, for uh, toolbox engineers. Um, but when it comes down to telling a story, I don't want to worry about a lot of that stuff. I want to know that I can uh, put a, a picture and an audio piece together, the, the base components of cinema, as quickly as possible. Um, and that's what Final Cut Pro does for me. Next question. From Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California. Courtney says, since your main character was an agoraphob agoraphobic vampire, did you have to make sure that all the light bulbs and practicals and movie lights were not daylight balanced to avoid toasting <laughs> your main actress? Nice. I, I'm glad nice. we're sticking sticking the uh, the nerd landing on this on this show. Um, I'd expect no less a question from Hollywood, California, right now. So well played, well played, Courtney. Next question. Michael Smith in Silverado, California, is the writer's strike going to uh, work to your advantage to help sell your film? Um, oh, we'll see. It's, yeah, I mean, we are friends who are writers, we are friends who are actors, so it's, it's a fair and a good question, and there will be a part of us that will that will at least understand that some people are going to be looking for content, right? And um, and definitely indies because indies are allowed to do things differently. We're not we're not in those unions at this moment, and so and um, and I'll just say we're not we're not in the unions. I fully support what what the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild are doing. I think they they absolutely have a, a a valid perspective, and I I wish them the most success. Um, not being a part of either one of those unions, um, time will tell if the uh, vacuum of content. Uh, creates an opportunity for uh, stuff stuff created outside of it. But I, I tend I tend to think probably not. I mean, I think it's just um, that maybe a slight door will open or something, but chances are it'll be the same uphill battle it would have been with or without that. Sure. Other than thousands and thousands of people um, are fighting the good cause, and we hope they get what they want. Yeah. Let's get to the last one real quick here. From Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. I've heard it said that you should have a project in your pocket while promoting your current project. So what's next? Um, I'm working on an idea right now. I, it's um, 
you want to try to find the right idea to work on. So I had an idea I was working on for a while, but that just seemed like just too hard in indie to try to pull off again. And uh, not that I want easy indie, but I want something that um, that uh, that I think could be made. Um, so, I mean, there's an idea I'm toying with. You don't want to, the hard part is, and again, it's it's been a while since we filmed, so that's okay. But it's like, you don't want to get addicted to the new, new when you have to deliver the best version of the thing you're making, right? And so some people are great at that. So, I mean, I I write down kind of a paragraph ideas here and there. I write down some lines of dialogue. I write down some scene ideas. I take some photos, grab some photos, use mid-journey a little bit to kind of put it together. Um, uh, definitely, I want to keep doing a little bit more of that. But um, yeah, I it's, I think it's I think that's wise advice to have something in your pocket. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna finish this project, um, and then once once we're once we're locked on it and um, we're moving more into the distribution side, that's when we'll be really kind of polishing our uh, our presentations on the the next material. Um, we both have feature scripts. Yeah. We both have a a, a series uh, that's been largely developed uh is is ready for you know kind of the the major pitch um so we we've yes we do have like a small portfolio of uh indie features little bigger indie features limited series type stuff um and i think we'll like i said we'll we'll polish the edges on that once we lock this jeffrey andrew thank you so much for coming back and giving us an update we look for the next time that we can see when hopefully you've got a finished film and we can talk about what it took to get it there thank you to everybody who is involved in office hours every day our guests our panelists our producers the crew on the back end everybody putting their time in to make this happen every day uh well, that wraps us for today don't forget after hours goes 24 7 see you tomorrow Well done, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having us. Apologies for the outages. <laughs> Cats are delicious. You, you crash pretty, uh, pretty reasonably. At least we had something. That's why you go prepared, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs>